Next on Abounding Grace, we'll show you why you can trust your Bible. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my place. That you would bear my cross. You Welcome once again to Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. We're traveling through John's Gospel right now. Perhaps you have some doubts about the Bible. You wonder if it's reliable and trustworthy. Well, today, Pastor Ed will lay out the evidence to support the trustworthiness of the Bible, leaving no doubt that the Bible is the very Word of God. He'll utilize the acronym MAPS to help us remember each piece of evidence. Now. Before we leave, I want to give you four pieces of evidence that will greatly build your faith when it comes to the scriptures. You're correct. We don't have the original autographs, but we have ample, overwhelming, astonishing evidence that the translation you hold in your hand today and the translations that Wycliffe Bible translators and translators around the world for for many, many hundreds of years have been writing in languages, in known languages of the time, directly reflect the original autographs. And I want to give you four things today before we head out. And you can remember these four things by remembering the word maps. M-A-P-S. If you can remember the word maps, and the reason why we're using the word maps, because if you look in the back of your Bible, what do you usually have in the back of your Bible? Maps. And it'll always tie in. If you can remember the word maps, you'll remember these four things. So let's look at them, beginning with number one, which is the letter M. M stands for the manuscript evidence. Manuscript evidence. There are approximately 14,000 manuscripts dating thousands of years old of the Old Testament. The Old Testament canon, the collection of books, have been intact for thousands and thousands of years. We have 14,000 manuscripts to prove that. There are about 5,300 manuscripts of the New Testament Greek texts. And when we think of manuscripts, don't think of of thousands of exact copies of all the pages. This could also refer to fragments, uh, full books, but 14,000. For example, one of the greatest, most popular manuscripts that have been found concerning the Old Testament was found in the area of the Dead Sea. You might know them as the Dead Sea Scrolls. Among the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found a complete copy of the book of Isaiah in its totality altogether. Because people like to argue about the Bible and they say, well, two Isaiahs wrote, or there were two parts to Isaiah, because God couldn't be that accurate in his prophecies in the second half of Isaiah. And so there's all this debate, but in the Dead Sea Scrolls, up in the caves, you go to Israel with us, we'll take you there. You'll stand up and you'll look at the caves. We'll go through a a whole tour of the area there. And you can see the cave where the Dead Sea Scrolls. You go down, then we'll go down to the Israeli Museum. And right before we go into the Israeli Museum is a copy of the Dead Sea Scrolls that you walk through. And you look through and everything. It's right there with your own eyes. You can see it. All of Isaiah. And then for the New Testament, you got 5,300 of the New Testament, or 5,300, I should say, of New Testament Greek texts. But there's also an additional 19,000 copies of Parts of the New Testament in Syriac, in Latin, in Coptic, and Aramaic languages dating back to 
the first century. The total supporting New Testament manuscript evidence is over 24,000 pieces. 24,000. You go, Ed, what's the big deal about that? Well, let's go back, if you will, to your days in high school, maybe even to your days in college, when you were told to read those philosophical works and those classics. Maybe in your class you were asked to read Plato. And as you were reading the philosopher Plato, you're, you're no, I don't think anyone raised their hand and said, I don't believe these are the writings of Plato. Prove it to me. Everybody just accepted it. These are the writings of Plato. And as you were reading them and doing your work, I mean, in my class, nobody ever asked. I didn't ask, oh, how do I know these are from the original? How do we know people didn't mess with them? And you know, for the works of Plato, do you know how many manuscripts exist that go back to the days that he wrote? Seven. Not 24,000, but seven. But have you met anybody that doubts that what he wrote is what he wrote? I haven't. I, th- I think back to the time when we were reading Shakespeare. That was pretty hard, reading Shakespeare. Some of us had to memorize it, stand in front of the class, and uh, it was really, really hard. But do you know that for some of the works of Shakespeare, there are zero manuscripts that exist? Zero. And in others, it dates, it, the range goes from one to maybe in the double digits. But have you met anyone that ever raised their hand and go, how do I know Shakespeare really wrote this? You just, hey man, Shakespeare wrote it. It's been passed down through the time and and it is what it is. So from zero manuscripts to the double digits, Tacitus is widely regarded as a historian that's reliable. There's only 20 manuscripts for him. Homer's Iliad, 640. The New Testament, 24,000. And I suggest to you today, that that's reliable evidence to hold on to. That's one piece of reliable evidence. However, what if we had zero manuscripts? What if the New Testament had zero manuscripts? Nothing there. And here we are putting together a Bible study and I have zero manuscripts. Even if we had zero, there was a group of men, early church leaders, the second century into the third century. They were disciples of the disciples. So they would follow Peter, they would follow John, they would learn from Peter and John. We know them today, and you might hear them referred to as the church fathers. They were the leaders, the pastors of the early church after the apostles died off. And they continued on sharing the word, preaching the gospel. The good news about the church fathers is that we have many of their teachings and writings. We have a lot that they shared. And as you study the church fathers, for the four gospels alone, just Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're quoted by the church fathers almost 20,000 times. And they quote them as authoritative for daily living, for teaching, like pastors do today. They, they quote, besides the, the gospels, they quote the rest of the New Testament they have found over 86,000 times. The New Testament is mentioned by the church fathers. But what's most astounding is this number I learned for the very first time putting this together. We could actually put the New Testament together from the quotations of the church fathers. The entire New Testament we put together except for 11 verses. The whole New Testament was quoted by church fathers except for 11 verses. That means that 99.86% of the New Testament could be written just by using the quotes of the church fathers. To me, that's overwhelming. That's an overwhelming piece of evidence. Why can you trust the Bible? Because the evidence is overwhelming. 
The manuscript evidence alone helps to substantiate our faith that the Bible that we have today is trustworthy. But we have a second one, number two. The A in maps stands for archaeology. The archaeological evidence is equally amazing. The Bible is a book that's rooted in fact. The Bible is a book that is rooted in history. The Bible names times. The Bible names names. The Bible names cities and leaders and world leaders. It names contemporaries in time, in places of other countries. The Bible contains a whole host of concrete time-stamped facts that an archaeologist would look at and say, let's verify that. Unlike a book, say, like the Book of Mormon, that also claims to have all these facts, where archaeologists have taken the Book of Mormon and they've looked for all these things of the book, and it doesn't exist. None of it's true. You can't find any of it. But with the Bible, over and over again, truths are found that substantiate the Bible. It's been said that the Bible confirms archaeology. And I would say, I would agree to that to some extent. But the real way of looking at that is archaeology. Well, actually, the Bible would say, people would say archaeology confirms the Bible. But the truth is that the Bible confirms archaeology every single time. Every time someone goes to dig, they find another confirmation of the Bible's truthfulness. You know, for many years, critics said the Bible wasn't true, the New Testament wasn't true, because nowhere, anywhere did they find any proof that there was a Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate plays a very prominent role in the life of Jesus Christ. And because there was no inscription and no writing and nowhere, they said, well, the Bible can't be true. The New Testament can't possibly be true. There was no such thing as Pontius Pilate. Not even in the Roman records can we find him. Until they were digging at Caesarea by the sea, And as they were digging by Caesarea by the sea, which is another place that we will take you on our tour, they found a stone. And you know what was written on that stone? The name Pontius Pilate. If you go to Caesarea by the sea today, there is a facsimile right there where you can see it and take a picture. But then all you need to go is down to Jerusalem because the original is in the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem. All of a sudden now, they believe that Pontius Pilate was real. Why? Well, the Bible already said that, but archaeology confirmed it. The Bible was true. If you go on our tour later next year, we'll take you to a place that we have only been going to a couple years ago, uh, and it's an area, an excavation of Magdala. And Magdala is also a very prominent place in the New Testament, but for years it was under dirt. For years there was a gas station there on the corner and nothing else and a road going through. And then one day a guy, a Franciscan monk, I believe, decided that he wanted to create a bed and breakfast in that area. They owned the land. They wanted to build a bed and breakfast a place where people could come and rest on their pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And like any time in Israel, when they start digging in dirt, they have to bring out the Antiquities Commission to make sure that they don't disrupt anything. And as they were digging, they found, they started to find things like the original synagogue that was there at the time of Jesus and a place where they were gathering. And now it's a place, now you can go there and tour through it because Magdala exists. Now, many people didn't know that Magdala exists or even believe that it exists, but it's there now. If you go to Capernaum, there is the foundation stones of the original uh, synagogue in that whole area of the town there, Capernaum. You can walk up and down the Mount of Olives. Why? Because archaeology proves, really the Bible proves itself to be true. Even Sir Robert Ramsey set out to disprove the Bible, and his finds 
were used, what he found on his excavation, what were used by God to give him a new life, he became a believer from a skeptic. It makes sense that we would find people. And it makes sense that we would find places. And it makes sense that we would find objects to conform to the biblical narrative. And we have. You can go to the Israeli Museum in Jerusalem and you will find little Canaanite idols that are mentioned in the Old Testament. You will find inscriptions like the house of David that was recently found and many of the Old Testament finds. The way they've set that, is, that museum up is you can walk through time and you'll see in each exhibit things that have been found and dug up from the Holy Land that the Bible said would be there or the Bible said was there and they were dug up and seen now. You go, wow. I mean, over and over and over again, archaeology proves to be the, one of the tools that reveals the truth of the Scriptures. Thirdly, before we head out, the P stands for the prophetic evidence of the scriptures. The Bible, as God being the author, is a supernatural book. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 46. Prophecy is very important. This isn't the kind of broad predictions that a person can make. You know, like last night when you knew it was snowing and you go, hey, I'll make a prediction. I think when I wake up in the morning, there'll be snow on the ground. No, 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 no. Or, uh, you know, the sky might be blue or the moon will come out or whatever it might be. Not, not the broad types of predictions that are made on tabloids and so general that, of course, they'll come to ba- pass. But very specific predictions are made all throughout the scriptures because God is the author. Not only that, that the Bible declares if there's anyone that ever makes a prediction on behalf of God and is wrong, under the Old Testament law, they were to be stoned to death. Predictions prove the scriptures prophetically. In Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9, it says this. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there's none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Prophecy has been called the calling card of God. He knows the beginning from the end. And when he predicts something... It comes to pass. Because he knows the future, with absolute certainty, God can predict it and make it even come to pass. If you're you're still in Isaiah, turn over to Isaiah 48, verse 3. Isaiah 48, verse 3. The prophecy in the scriptures is astounding. And it's one more evidence that the Bible we hold in our hands is true. It's hard for the skeptic to get around this truth. Isaiah 48, verse 3. I have declared the former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth, and I caused them to hear it. Suddenly I did them, and they came to pass. Because I knew that you were obstinate, your neck was an iron sinew, and your brow bronze. Even from the beginning I've declared it to you. Before it came to pass, I proclaimed it to you, lest you should say, my idol has done them, and my carved image and my molded image have commanded them. In the midst of idolatry, instead of assigning the the prophetic word to some idol, God says, I told you beforehand so you know that I'm God. That makes me God. I can predict the future and it will come to pass with absolute 100% certainty. Now, I want to share with you just one that when I learned it as a new believer, it completely blew my mind. And I want you to see it. We're already in Isaiah, so turn over to Isaiah chapter 44. And I hope if it's new for you, it will blow your mind too. We looked at it briefly when we studied through Nehemiah and Ezra, but check this out. This is an amazing prophecy that was written by Isaiah. 
Isaiah 44, notice with me verse 6. We'll just kind of skip through to the end, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I'm the first and I'm the last. Besides me there is no God. Who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it and set it in order for me. Since I appointed the ancient people and the things that are coming and shall come, let them show these to them. Do not fear, nor be afraid. Have I, not told, have I not told you from that time and declared it? You are my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. Verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, and he who has formed you from the womb. I am the Lord, verse 24, who makes all things, who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of the babblers and drives diviners mad who turns wise men backward and makes their knowledge foolishness, who confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, who says to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited, to the cities of Judah you shall be built, and I will raise up her waste places. Now remember, Isaiah is writing this. Isaiah is the holy holy man of God, and he's writing, inspired by God, assigning these words to God. And it's a very interesting thing. He's speaking to Jerusalem, you shall be inhabited. And the Judah, the city, Judah, you shall be built, and I'll raise up her waste places. Who says to the deep, verse 27, be dry, and I'll dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, now mark that, Cyrus. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure. Even saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held. Now this part of Isaiah was written around 700 BC. Isaiah says a man by name, names him by name. His name is Cyrus in 700 BC. That he will declare to the destroyed city of Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. What's fascinating about this is that at the time of this writing, Jerusalem was inhabited, and the temple was standing. And Isaiah is just writing down that this man is going to say, hey, rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem, Cyrus, by name. About 100 years later after this writing, both were destroyed, the temple and the city of Jerusalem, by the Babylonians. They came in, you recall, being used by God, to bring judgment upon the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel had failed to give the land rest for 490 years. Instead, they were idolatrous. Instead, they turned their backs on God. And God had enough, and he sent the Babylonians in, and they destroyed the city and tore down the temple and took everything that belonged to the people. Now, that's fascinating enough. But at the time of this writing, Cyrus wasn't even alive. He didn't even exist Everything was great. Babylon, after the destruction, was later conquered by the Persians. The year was 539 BC. And shortly after that, Babylonians being conquered by the Persians, a Persian king by the name of Cyrus gave the decree to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple 160 years after Isaiah wrote this. To me, the Bible is filled with this stuff. It's an amazing, Cyrus didn't even exist. 
over 354 Old Testament prophets. You think, well, Cyrus is an amazing thing. How can God name a man by name that he'll be used as his shepherd and he'll be used as his tool? A man that didn't believe in God but still was used by God. What's even more amazing with prophecies is what the prophecies that are fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ. 354 Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in the first coming of Jesus Christ. Did you know that 28 prophecies alone, just 28 prophecies alone, were fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Now, the Persians used crucifixion, but they didn't perfect it like the Romans did. The Romans had perfected the model of crucifixion in an amazing way that didn't exist when the prophecies of crucifixion in the Psalms and other places were said to be of the first coming of Messiah. I mean, it's, it's amazing that God can know ahead of time before the Romans were ever in power how it would all go down. 28. So many more prophecies await fulfillment in the second coming of Jesus Christ, which leads us to our last point as we are out of time. The last point, we have manuscript evidence, we have archaeological evidence, We have the predictive prophecy evidence of the scriptures. The last one, the the letter S, that represents the phrase, the statistical probabilities of all these things being accurate and true of one single book. Additionally, the statistical probability of any of these prophecies coming to pass is beyond, it's beyond our comprehension. The Bible is indeed a book supernatural in origin. And it continues to defy the critics. The statistical probability of the things that I've shared with you is clearly undeniable. For example, we'll just take one thing. Eight prophecies, eight Old Testament prophecies referring to Jesus Christ. If we just look at eight of them being fulfilled by Jesus, statisticians have looked at this, that we can conclude that the odds of their coming to pass in one man with all the predictions, just eight, are actually 1 in 10 to the 17th power. That is, 1 with 17 zeros after it, or the number 1, 1, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0, 0. If I covered them all or I missed some of them, you can add them. That many zeros of chances in one. Peter Stoner in his book, Science Speaks, he put it this way. If you took that number one, or you took that number 10 to the 17th power and you translate it into 10 to the 17th power silver dollars, and you take those silver dollars to Texas and you lay them out on the face of the state of Texas, if we were to do that, we would have so many silver dollars that it would cover the entire face of Texas two feet deep. And we would take one of those, we'd pull one of those out, and we would paint it, mark it, paint it a color, you know, make it silver, red, whatever it is, and then move, throw it somewhere in the state of Texas, in that two feet deep of silver dollars. And we take a man, or a woman, and we blindfold them, and we drop them with a parachute into Dallas. And we tell them, I want you to find the one silver dollar. If they found it, that would be the probability of just eight prophecies being fulfilled in one man recorded previously in the scriptures. Again, those four very powerful pieces of evidence, manuscript, archaeological, prophetic, and statistical probability. 
Thanks for joining us today on Abounding Grace with Pastor Ed Taylor. You'll find us on the web at AboundingGraceRadio.com. It's there you can replay any program you enjoy. We've also made it super easy to donate to the ministry through our website and contact us, too. Speaking of which, we'd sure like to hear from you. Let us know what you think of our current study and if you're finding these daily studies helpful to your walk. We'd also very much appreciate your support as we present Abounding Grace here over the radio and Internet. Again, go to AboundingGraceRadio.com. Today, we want to suggest a book that can help take your prayer life up to the next level. It's E.M. Bounds on Prayer. These reflections on prayer have been treasured for well over a hundred years. When you read about the powerful ways God works through prayer, you'll understand why this book has been so well-received. We'll send you a copy of E.M. Bounds on Prayer as our thank you for your donation of $25 or more to Abounding Grace. Just call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's toll-free, 877-30-GRACE. You can also order it through our e-store at calvaryco.store. Next time on Abounding Grace, we'll learn that we can trust our Bible because Jesus did. This is amazing grace. This is unfailing love. That you would take my prayers. That you would bear my cross. You Abounding Grace is brought to you by Calvary Church, Colorado, here in Aurora.